your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to Romans chapter 6. Now, I was already, I have received uh, smirks uh, this morning that we would do this in about 20 minutes and a whole chapter at that. Uh, But we are. We obviously aren't going to go into details, but I do want to look at the big picture here in this glorious chapter where Paul uses the metaphor and the symbolism of baptism uh, to be reminded of what it is uh, that we again are celebrating and doing this morning. And especially for those of you who are not familiar maybe with the gospel or if there's anyone who's never uh, quite thought about why do we do this thing? Why do Christians stand in the water and get wet and come up out of the water? What is behind that? Well, as I said, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 23. And what we're going to do is I want to point out three Three things that are witnessed to in the waters of baptism. So we'll have three testimonies of the symbolic witness to Christ in the waters of baptism. We'll, we'll talk about the witness of Christ to of the person in the work of Christ, the witness to their salvation in Christ, and the witness to their commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ. All of this being pictured in baptism. Let's consider just first the symbolic witness to the person and the work of Christ. There is a declaration of the person of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done in the waters of baptism. Now, I told you to turn to chapter 6, but of course, chapter 6 comes uh, after chapters 1 through 5. So let me just set very, very broadly the context of Romans. Uh, From Romans 1 to chapter 3... Paul, the writer of the book, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is establishing the gospel. As a matter of fact, he said his purpose in writing is so that he might declare the gospel to those who are in Rome, the gospel which is the power of God for salvation to those who believe to Jew and Gentile, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And, and interestingly, Paul begins often where we do not begin in our explanation of the gospel, and that is by declaring who God is, And declaring the guilt of all men. Why do we even need the gospel? Why is the declaration of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ important to begin with? So Paul establishes that in the first few chapters. And essentially, he lays out the case for why all are guilty. Why it is right and it is just for God to say that his condemnation, his wrath, is revealed from heaven against men. Against men. And he summarizes that. In verses 10 through 19. And I'm just going to read those. It's a summary of everything he said up to this point. Uh, In Romans chapter 3. He says this in verse 10. There is none righteous. There is not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. And here is the summary of it all. The heart of it all. The spiritual reality behind everything else is verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They have no internal fear of God or reverence for God. Or desire to worship Him, to honor Him and to trust Him. And so he says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
So the whole point of knowing, if we were to summarize that, those last two verses, God's requirement of man is not an instruction manual of how we might be righteous and accepted by God, but is rather a revelation of God's character to show us that we are unable to be righteous and we need a righteousness that isn't our own. We need something that God is going to provide. And so this is what Paul summarizes in that well-known verse, in verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that is God's testimony uh, of us by nature. We come into this world not as innocent. We do not come into this world as neutral in terms of sin and our attitude towards God. We come into this world with a natural bent and affection against God and to go our own way. We, we don't have to be taught how to sin. We have to be taught about how to obey God through Jesus Christ. And to summarize that point, he says in chapter 5, verse 12, he says this, Therefore, just as through one man, here speaking of Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So that's how you and I entered into this world. With this inner characteristics or characteristic of rebellion, of disobedience to God, and in desperate need of God to do something. It is to say then, we, we come in here with a nature already set against God, and then our lives are just an outworking of that nature that show why God is just in his condemnation. Sin permeates every aspect of our being, that's the point. Not everybody expresses sin to the same degree, of course. Not everybody is a rapist and a murderer and so on and so forth. But it is to say this, that sin affects every part of your person, your whole person. It affects your mind, the way you think and that you reason. It affects your affections, your, your heart and the things that you desire and the things that you want. And it shows in your life, in things that you actually do. You sin. Why? Because that's who you are by nature. And so Paul is establishing that right at the very beginning. And he does so because he wants to show the guilt of all people to give a context for the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so after he declares our sin, he says this in chapter 3, verse 21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. He says later that God displayed Christ in verse 25 publicly as a propitiation. There's a big, big word. You probably have not used that in a sentence uh, in the last week. Uh, the idea is simply this, is that in Christ and his death on the cross, God was through him averting his wrath. He was, through the death of Christ, through his suffering, he was taking his wrath, he was placing it on Christ, and then removing it from those who would believe in him. In other words, it is to say that Christ completely satisfied every demand of the law through his life and through his death. He says in verse 25 of chapter 4, he was delivered over because of our transgressions. In other words, our sin was the cause of his death and he was raised because of our justification. In other words, his resurrection is the authentication of his work, saying God has accepted his sacrifice. He's accepted it completely, he's accepted it fully, he's accepted it totally, and he applies it to all who are in Christ. 
So God has provided everything that is required from us in terms of righteousness. That means that in Christ, in his person, every bit of God's righteous wrath and condemnation against our sin was completely and totally satisfied in Christ. So how does that work out practically? That means any religion that seeks to atone for sin by doing harsh things to the body, by saying a rosary, by going to confession, by doing good works, by doing anything else to bring punishment on ourselves and somehow to satisfy God for our sin is wrong. It's false. It's demonic. Christ has completely fulfilled that on the cross. There is nothing to add to his death, to his suffering. It totally, completely exhausted the wrath of God against the sin of all who believe. Totally. The second part of that, though, is God doesn't... We don't just need forgiveness. We need actually to obey God. And that is the perfect life of Christ. He satisfied God's righteousness in that sense. That means Christ lived a totally perfect life, a sinful life, that we were to live or supposed to live as human beings. He required, he fulfilled every requirement of righteousness from us. And that doesn't mean just doing certain things in the law. That means from his heart, he had a perfect love to God. And that means in his life, he perfectly obeyed God. Without fail, without one sin, without one thought that was polluted or wicked, without one intention that was marred by pride or self or sin, perfectly obeyed the Father. On our behalf. This is summarized in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. In other words, he was treated as if he had committed all of our sin. He was treated as sin on the cross. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so he could treat us as if we were as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. So nothing can be added to his person and work on our behalf. Every requirement was met in Jesus. And this is received by faith. This is received by faith. He says this, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned, credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. In other words, it is by simply believing on the work of Christ, on the person and the work of Christ, that God gives all of the grace and all of the forgiveness that he accomplished for us. This faith is not in itself a work. It's not faith as a work, but faith is merely receiving all of the things that God declares he has done on our behalf in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul is establishing at the beginning. That the dilemma to Adam's sin, the dilemma of man's corruption, the dilemma of our condemnation before God has been solved completely and totally in Jesus Christ. The promise that one would come to crush Satan on his head, destroy his works in Genesis 3.15 has been fulfilled. It's done. It's complete. There's nothing else to add to it. It is a complete offer of reconciliation to sinful men through the work of Jesus Christ. And so he says this in chapter 5. For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. He says in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, you might say, why is that important in, 
for us to understand? Well, obviously, because it's in understanding our sin and the work of Christ that we are led to faith or to be led to faith in Christ. But there's something else that that brings us into this chapter that uh, happens in understanding this grace or that can happen. And this is going to lead to the second point, the symbolic witness of the salvation of Jesus Christ. Now, Now, here's the problem. Here's the conflict that arose to some. By understanding this grace, the complete, total, comprehensive nature of grace, that in Christ, everything is fulfilled. Nothing else can be added. Nothing can be taken away. God has provided everything that he requires in the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's, that's wonderful news. But some say, then, that because of this overwhelming nature of forgiveness, there are two, two slippery slopes that we can fall into. Okay, there's two errors, and Paul's going to address this here for us. And again, this is going to, in doing so, declare to us what the importance of baptism is. And the one error is this. One error is, error is legalism. And in one form, legalism seeks to protect grace, this freedom of grace, with, with rules, with regulations. In other words, don't do this, do that. So if you're a Christian... And if you're going to believe in this grace, then it means you you can't go to these places, you can't listen to this thing, you can't associate with these people, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to read your Bible this many minutes a day, you have to pray this many minutes, you have to pray in this posture, maybe on your knees, you have to use this version of the Bible, maybe the King James only uh, version, whatever it is, it says you have to do this in order to be righteous. And that's called legalism. That's called legalism. And the problem with that is that rules become a new standard of righteousness. If you obey these rules, you're righteous. And if you don't, then you're not. This is the error that the Jews fell into with their traditions. And he said, you've invalidated the word of God through them. And obedience to God, no longer than for the Jewish nation that was apostate, a means of loving obedience to God, of humble trust in God, it became a means of their earning their own righteousness that actually cut them off from God. And excluded them from grace. He talks about that in chapter 10, verse 3. He says, uh, seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have rejected the righteousness of God. And therefore are perishing and will perish. Another error is this, and that is called licentiousness. Which essentially feels that because grace is so free, because it's so complete, that the pursuit of holiness in the Christian life really isn't that important. It just... You should maybe be holy, but sin is just not that serious of a threat to our soul. Because grace is so free, some may even say the more I sin, the more grace is magnified. The more the goodness of God is magnified in my sin. And that's what Paul is going to address here in verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? If we say that grace is that free, is that complete, then I might as well sin because then in my sin it says, look how great God is to constantly forgive me. Look how marvelous and good he is to forgive me even though I'm a sinner and even though I live this way. And and that's an error. He says, may it never be that we would think that way. Another says this, as though I shouldn't sin, but because I'm forgiven and because grace is so complete... Uh, I, I don't really feel that my sin is all that seriousness of, of a matter. I'm not really that motivated to holiness. Why? Because I'm forgiven. I should live better than I do, but boy, I'm having a really good time in my sin. I sure don't like all of that conviction that comes, you know, from those who preach what you should do. And so I'll just, I'll just be okay in the grace of God. Uh, that's another error. 
that could fall under that category of licentiousness. And both of these miss the point of the gospel. They miss the point, the spiritual realities of faith and salvation in Jesus Christ that are pictured in baptism and which Paul will address here in the remainder of the chapter. And I'm going to look at this just briefly, obviously, a whole chapter just in a few minutes. He cuts through both of these errors in the first ten verses. Let me, let me remind you, we read it earlier uh, of these, of these uh, opening statements of Paul. He says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves of sin." For he who has died is freed from sin. He who has died is freed from sin. And what is Paul talking about here? He's emphasizing this, the reality of baptism in the Spirit, which is pictured in the baptism by water. Let me explain this just a little bit. Notice what Paul is doing here and what God is doing here in the book of Romans. He's not giving an exhortation at these first few verses saying, do this. He's saying, he's declaring what has been done already in Christ. He's declaring what Christ has already done. He's declaring the believer's connection to this past work of Christ on our behalf. So when he says that, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He's now showing how that is true. In other words, it's true because those who have believed in Christ are in union with him. Notice what he says in verse 4. You have been buried with him through baptism. Your old self, in verse 6, has been crucified with him. These are things that Christ has already done. And so he's saying that Christ's death becomes our death. His life becomes our life. That we are in union with him. There is an intimate connection between the one who is trusted in Christ and the work that Christ has already accomplished in the cross and the resurrection. Now in chapter 8, he shows that this is actually a reality because of the Holy Spirit. Because of the Holy Spirit. Let me just mention a few verses. He says, There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, that is, the law in terms of what God's standard of righteousness is, it, couldn't, it could never be accomplished by those who are in sin. He says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned it in the flesh. He says in verse 4, so that all that God requires would be fulfilled in us. And then he says this really, really amazing thing in verse 9. He says, you are not in the flesh, and the flesh here meaning you're not under the rule and the domain of sin, your own sin. He says, but in the Spirit. For if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. 
And so that really is in pulling back even yet another layer of what he's talking about here and saying, how, are we, how have we died with Christ? How have we been crucified with Christ? How have we been raised with Christ? Well, because the Spirit comes and through faith unites the believing sinner to Christ and counts everything that Christ accomplished in his life and his death to the believing sinner. In salvation then, through faith, the Holy Spirit brings us to participate in the death and the ongoing life of Jesus Christ. And this is exactly, this is precisely what the baptism of John the Baptist anticipated. Don't turn there, I'm just going to mention this in Mark 1. He says this, describing John the Baptist. That he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And later John the Baptist testified to this. He says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the reality of the baptism by the Spirit being immersed, totally covered, totally counted in, totally identified with the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the spiritual reality that's being pictured or symbolized here in the waters of baptism. When one is brought under the waters of baptism, it is a symbolism that we have been buried with Christ, we have been united with him in his death, and when one is raised up from the waters of baptism, it is a symbolic a declaration that we have been raised up with Christ and as Paul declares in Romans 6, we walk with him in newness of life, his resurrection life. It is then also this. It is a declaration of faith and commitment to Christ. And here's the last point, just briefly. It's a symbolic witness of submission to the lordship of Christ. It's a symbolic witness to his person and to his work. It's a symbolic witness to this person's participation in his life and his death by faith and it's a symbolic witness of submission to him as Lord being baptized in water which is a command of Jesus Christ in a matter of obedience you remember he said in Matthew 28 baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit which would go into all nations it is a command of the Lord it was a command at the beginning of the preaching of the new covenant by Peter that you are to repent and to be baptized. So the person being baptized, each of these four testimonies that we'll hear, is declaring in the obedience of faith that they have trusted Christ and that they will seek to live consistent with the realities of spiritual union with Christ. That's what's being declared. And so he says that in verse 10, if you're looking at your Bible. Of Romans 6, he says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Speaking of Christ, verse 11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you would obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but you are under grace. Scripture presents to us this reality, that everybody in this room, indeed all of humanity, and certainly all of us who are sitting here in these pews this morning, because you're part of humanity, you live either under the authority of sin, or you live under the authority of Christ. You don't live in, in the middle. You ultimately are obedient to your own desires apart from Christ 
apart from his lordship, apart from his holiness, or you are obedient to Christ and to his word and to his person through trust in him. So that's, that's the two conditions that we're in. You're either under the authority of sin or you're under the authority of righteousness. And if we could even make that a little more stark, uh, you're either under the authority and the influence of Satan, the evil one, or you're under the authority and influence of Christ through his word. That's it. You have a master whether you want one or not. You have a master. The, the question is not, am I a slave or do I have a master? The question is, what master do you have? And who do you have as your master? And so for those who are in Christ, he's saying, live consistent with your master, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're either obedient to yourself, your own reasoning, your own desires, or you're obedient to Jesus Christ. Your body is presented to Christ as an instrument of righteousness and for his glory or to something else. So to stand in grace is not a get-out-of-jail-free card that now allows me to live according to whatever impulses I might have. To stand in grace is to stand enslaved to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to stand under his authority. That's what it means to stand in grace. So declare your faith and trust in Christ is to declare implicitly and indeed explicitly your obedience to him. It is to say this, when you're baptized, for those who are baptized and what's being declared is to say this, your life is not your own. It now belongs to Jesus Christ. We read it earlier in the opening in Mark chapter 8. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself. What was the rest? Take up your cross and follow me, right? That's what it means. I am your new master. I am your new master. And so that's what baptism is declaring. Let me lead to you one quote, and then we'll get ready. We'll sing a couple hymns and get ready to hear our testimonies. One put it very well like this, uh, and and I'm reading here from someone else. One of the classic Christian paradoxes is that freedom leads to slavery, and slavery leads to freedom. As soon as people are set free through Christ from slavery to sin, they enter a new permanent slavery to Christ. Indeed, the one slavery is terminated precisely in order to allow the other slavery to begin. While that emancipation happens individually, the persons who are freed are not simply isolated slaves of Christ. They form a worldwide community of fellow slaves, all belonging to one master who purchased their freedom and all committed to obeying and pleasing him. And so baptism is not only picturing the identity of these individuals as belonging to Christ, their new Lord and Master, it is also a symbolism that marks them as entering into this whole body of believers, that they are now a part of the community of those who belong to Jesus Christ by faith. They are fellow followers, fellow slaves, fellow sons, fellow servants of Christ. So baptism is a declaration not only of faith in Christ, but that you are under new ownership. You're under new ownership. That you're a slave of a new master. That you want to live in a manner that pleases and glorifies him. Let me finish out this chapter just reading it. 
What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of, to the, of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Having been freed from sin, here's the principle, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So if you're a slave of sin in verse 20, you can't do righteousness. If you're a slave of righteousness, that's the mark of your life, not sin. So these being baptized in water today are bearing testimony through the symbol of baptism to this, to the person and work of Jesus Christ. They're bearing testimony that they are in union with Christ by faith and by the Spirit. And they're declaring that their life has been submitted to Christ as Lord and that they are going to pursue obedience to Him. That they are going to pursue sanctification, which is to be more holy, made like Christ. They are declaring that they belong to Jesus Christ. That they are no longer their own, but they have been purchased with a price. Namely, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So understand what is happening this morning and rejoice with them and us all as we hear their testimonies. So I'm going to pray and then we'll sing a couple more hymns while we go to the back and change and uh, get ready to be in the the water and then uh, we'll hear these testimonies. So pray with me if you will. Father, we thank you for the glorious grace that you have provided in your son, Jesus Christ. What you require from us, we are unable to give to you. Love from a pure heart. Love with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we come into this world loving other things. We come into this world seeking pleasure in places other than obedience to you and glorifying you. We thank you that you have provided for us a Savior. That you in the person of Jesus Christ as he was witnessed to in all of the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, as he was witnessed to in his coming and in his public death and resurrection that you have provided for us what we could never achieve on our own namely righteousness and you give it through faith so I do pray that we who know you would live in the newness of life that we would pursue that thank you for your forgiveness as we stumble along the way in that path and I pray again that for those who may not know you that they would consider their condition this morning and maybe even being pricked by something they hear in these testimonies, commit their life to you as Lord and as Savior. And to this end, we commit ourselves. In your name, Jesus, amen.